Hey everyone, this is another Patreon preview. This is We're going back to our General Strikes in the U.S. History series. In this one, we cover the Toledo Auto Light Strike, as well as the 1934 Minneapolis Strike. Uh, I guess they're both in 1934, but anyway, this clip is going to be from that first strike, and uh, if you'd like the full thing, become a patron at patreon.com slash workstoppage. It's the only way we get any funding for doing the show, and we really appreciate that as we put a lot of work into this project. Uh, If you can't afford to become a patron, jump in the Discord and message one of the admins, and we can hook you up, but again, this is the only way we get money, so please subscribe. Anyway, here is the preview. I hope you enjoy. Solidarity. And so uh, Ted Salander, one of the rank-and-file leaders of the strike movement, recalled 50 years later an incident during the strike by women workers demonstrating the militant mood in the city. He said, quote, Half the employees at the Autolite were women who were among the very best strikers we had. A couple of days after the National Guard came in, the women grabbed a scab, took him into an alley, and stripped every bit of clothing off of him except his tie and shoes. Then they marched him, naked as a jaybird, up and down the downtown streets. Next day, the papers carried a large picture of him on the front page, but they had their artist broaden and lengthen the tie to hide the family jewels. You can bet that picture discouraged a lot of scabs, but it got a big round of applause from the unionists in Ohio, <laughs> end quote. Uh, another wow. uh, rare Midwestern W. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I always love reading about like, because, you know, you read about a strike, it's like, oh, scabs tried to get in and so they got punched in the face. Like, it's not really as interesting or creative as a story. <laughs> and so like yeah. these ways, these like punishments that are specifically meant to discourage, I always think are, are very interesting. I just love to hear like the, the conversation between two old like Ohio people after it happened. Like you hear about the scab at Autolite. Oh, yeah. I heard those ladies took his clothes off and frog marched him naked as a jaybird. <laughs> yep. It was in the paper and everything. <laughs> Yeah, and so, you know, in response to the sudden unity of workers, the refusal of the scabs to act as scabs, and instead to stand with the strikers, screwing up the whole plan to undermine the strike by the bosses, the bosses turned to their next favorite tool, a court injunction, which had always served well for the the bosses, you know, throughout the years with the courts consistently siding with capital over labor. And once again, the court issued a ruling limiting the number of pickets from either the union or the unemployed league to a maximum of 25 at any one time. Now, these are very common injunctions even still today. If you like there, we've talked about plenty of them that still happen all the time on the show. They happened in the warrior met strike mm-hmm. during the, uh, you know, the strike at John Deere during strike Tober. These are still very, very common and it is very difficult to get around these injunctions unless you have some creative tactics. (laughs) And so, uh, in response to this injunction, the Unemployed League responded by sending a letter to the judge, which read, May 5, 1934. His Honor Judge Stewart, County Courthouse, Toledo, Ohio. Honorable Judge Stewart, on Monday morning, May 7, 
At the Autolite plant, the Lucas County Unemployment League, in protest of the injunction issued by your court, will deliberately and specifically violate the injunction in joining us from sympathetically picketing peacefully in support of the striking auto workers federal union. We sincerely believe that this court intervention preventing us from picketing is an abrogation of our democratic rights contrary to our constitutional liberties and contravenes the spirit and letter of Section 7A of the NRA. Further, we believe that the spirit and intent of this arbitrary injunction is another specific example of an organized movement to curtail the rights of all workers to organize, strike, and picket effectively. Therefore, with full knowledge of the principles involved and the possible consequences, we openly and publicly violate an injunction which, in our opinion, is a suppressive and oppressive act against all workers. Sincerely yours, Lucas County Unemployment League, Anti-Injunction Committee, Sam Pollock, Secretary. I love that they wrote a letter and they were just like, hey, uh, you're wrong and we're going to violate what you said to do. (laughs) But they wrote it out like as nice and professional as you possibly could. (laughs) That's that is the best part to me of of this is that there were absolutely as professional about this as all the other as exactly how the injunction, I'm sure, was written. Mm -hmm. And they're just like, oh, nice injunction. Don't care. (laughs) You want to abrogate our constitutional liberties? How about you abrogate these nuts? Your right honorable (laughs) Judge Stewart. (laughs) And there's something about not just being like, fuck you and your stupid injunction. We're just, we're not following that. But to send them a letter telling Mm -hmm. them that, yes, we are going to break your injunction and break the law. And we're going to go ahead and write it down. Because fuck you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, this is the equivalent of just sending a photo of the entire union holding up their middle fingers at the judge. <laughs> I know, yeah. it's so good. <laughs> we have received your injunction and promptly tossed it in the bin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so pickets in violation of the injunction began on May 7th, but understandably not without a little bit of trepidation. Uh, two leaders of the pickets were immediately arrested for contempt of court and were released with suspended sentences as long as the illegal picketing did not continue. The picketing resumed immediately. Hell yes. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the police continuously tried to shut down the strike by arresting the unemployed picketers violating the injunction. Leaders of the unemployed league were jailed, but the league continued sending dozens and dozens of unemployed workers to the picket line faster than the police could arrest and jail them. Judge Stewart attempted to try the leaders of the league, but the courtroom was packed every day with hundreds of supporters who prevented the trial from advancing. There were eventually so many picketers in the jail that the city was forced to release most of them due to being simply unable to handle that many prisoners. (laughs) Hell yeah. That's kind of (laughs) cool. Now, as cool as that is, I must be lame and put an asterisk in here. Mm Mm-hmm. That would not work today. Oh, nope. absolutely not. There have been 90 years of a, pl- of a planned and intentional creation of a, of a carceral state in this country. Since then, there are a vast quantity of more uh, jails and prisons and all these other things than there were then. So as incredibly cool as this is, 
getting intentionally arrested Extinction Rebellion style is not really a viable tactic today. But it was oh, very cool back then. <laughs> oh, it's a very, very stupid thing to do today, which is why I think Extinction Rebellion tells you to do it. But that's neither here nor there. <laughs> but yeah, so... You know, they're trying to use an injunction to stop the blockade of picketers. Completely fails. Doesn't work. And a big part of this is also semi-unique to the Great Depression because you have so many people who are unemployed because it's like, oh, well, if you do this, we're going to arrest you. And be like, oh, so you're going to pay for my meals? Great. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, because uh, that's the thing. Like, every, you have so many people who just literally have nothing to lose. And, and, and so trying to go up against them with an injunction, probably not going to work. And even threats of arrest. So, But of course, the company was displeased by the failure of this injunction. They decided, you know, we're not going to wait for the whole legal process here. So they decided, we're going to break the strike ourselves. They brought in 1,500 scabs and hired hundreds of armed guards to escort them into and out of the plant. Now, these attempts to break the strike with scabs and gun thugs were yet another escalation by the company, and the Unemployed League rose to meet it. On May 21st, the League surrounded the Autolite plant with 1,000 workers to block the scabs. The next day, there were 4,000. Oh, my God. And by May 23rd, there were over 6,000 workers sealing off the electric Autolite company, rising to 10,000 in the afternoon. I have fallen out of my chair. <laughs> the the scale keeps increasing like really dramatically like if, um you ever played katamari damacy <laughs> a yes. little bit like that <laughs> so in response to this massive crowd uh more or less besieging the plant toledo sheriff david krieger who considered many of the local police and militia too sympathetic to the workers he deputized the armed goons who had been hired by the company, just essentially making them police, and moved in to arrest the leadership of the striking workers, or the ones who weren't already in jail. <laughs> uh, when deputies began beating an elderly picketer in the process of his arrest, the crowd of the workers decided, yeah, we're not just going to let this happen. Mm -hmm. They surged against the police, hurling stones, bricks, bottles, and anything that they could grab at the deputized thugs, forcing them to retreat into the factory. The guards tried pushing the crowd back with a fire hose, but the workers fought forward, seized the hose from them, and turned it back on the deputies. That's so fucking cool. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was rereading this last night because it was a little while since I, I, I had, had written these notes. And I was just like, man, this is such a cool strike. <laughs> like, I got to say, people of Toledo back in 1934, pretty badass. Hell um, yeah. Well, that's precisely what you should do if you see cops beating up an old person. Yeah. Well, and especially these are like even faker cops. Mm-hmm. Because they're just like, they're Pinkertons who they gave an official badge to. They, they cut out of a piece of paper. <laughs> so like... But also does emphasize how thin or non-existent the line between police and uh, Pinkertons is. So in response to, you know, the massive crowd of workers who they could not physically fight, guards perched on the roof of the plant began throwing tear gas bombs into the crowd, prompting the picketers to assault the factory using tire inner tubes from overturned company cars as slingshots to fire bricks, stones, and those tear gas canisters through the building's windows. <laughs> For seven hours, the workers fought the mercenary thugs, storming the plant several times before being driven back. 
20 people were injured in the fight as police fired into the crowd of workers following the complete ineffectiveness in their attempts to stop the picketers from surrounding and besieging the plant. And so the next day, in response to all this, 900 National Guardsmen, including multiple machine gun units, were deployed to Toledo by the governor to rescue the mercenaries and the scabs now uh, trapped in the plant. It always they goes f- like this. It always goes cops, Pinkertons, National Guard. It never, never not. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah, it could just go cops, Pinkertons. Maybe this was a bad idea. Maybe we should just agree to their terms and then go back to normal. It's de- but it's not. They mm-hmm. just can't accept it. And so the National Guard forced their way into the crowd of picketers and evacuated the scabs. But they were, even with 900 National Guardsmen and multiple machine gun units, they were unable to secure the factory. Judge Stewart issued another injunction, though I don't know why, <laughs> banning all picketing at the Autolite factory, which was immediately ignored. Uh, this time the they didn't even write a letter. Yeah, he's like, well, I'm going <laughs> to issue another injunction. Why? <laughs> I, I, I love that he was like, these Great Depression-ass picketers don't even care about machine guns. Surely another injunction will stop them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, I, I, I just want to know. I'm like, what was going through your head there, man? Like, Probably a lot you... of air, man. I bet there's a lot of space <laughs> between his ears, tell you what. Yeah. <laughs> so the soldiers continued to try and force the workers to leave the plant, charging them with bayonets. And yet even that did not stop the tenacious workers of Toledo who continued to force back the National Guardsmen. Eventually, the soldiers fired into the crowd of unarmed workers, murdering workers Frank Hubei and Steve Saigon, both in their 20s. Dozens were injured by rifle fire as the soldiers raked the unarmed civilians with bullets. And yet, again, despite being confronted with cold-blooded murder from essentially the army, mm-hmm. the workers refused to be broken. Picketers continued to surround the plant, even when another 400 soldiers were called up, resulting in the largest peacetime deployment of military forces in Ohio history. The National Guard used so much tear gas, even citizens of Toledo who previously wanted nothing to do with the strike and did not support it in any way, turned against the National Guard for destroying their city. Dozens of local AFL unions who had not been involved in the strike, and despite the hesitancy of the national leadership of the AFL, voted to endorse a general strike throughout the entire city if the state did not stop its repression of the Autolite workers. And only when the company agreed to close the plant and stop trying to operate it with scabs on Friday, May 25th, did the picketers agree to disperse. Damn. I mean, imagine that. Imagine putting up with, like, cops then the Pinkertons, then the National Guard, getting charged with bayonets and shot at, and then after all that, all of the armed forces embarrassed themselves so badly that it turns out you just actually won because you held firm for that long. That's got to feel confusing and incredible. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's so much at once. Like, it's horrific on the one hand, you know, you've Mm -hmm. just witnessed a massacre, and yet your side held strong (laughs) against... A completely, absolute, entirely outgunned. The, like the 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 worker side were not using firearms. They weren't even using clubs for the most part. Yeah, and they yet, were they were literally shooting bricks from tires. <laughs> yeah, and yet <laughs> they fought them off. And so, uh, in the the sort of 
truce that was established, which I'm sure the company would call it as a way to save face, really, basically, when they admitted they were not able to keep the plant open. That weekend, the police used the lull to move in and arrest the, again, remaining not arrested leaders of the picket. They also keep failing to recognize that that is not a successful tactic. <laughs> they just keep doing it. That's the thing that I think we notice with this strike is they keep trying the same thing because they, they don't know how to not do that. <laughs> well, because I think they have the idea. They're like, I'm the CEO, and if I got arrested, my company would be in shambles, which is like, one, that's not how it works in a worker organization, and two, I bet your company would run better without you. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. So they uh, they jailed the leaders of the picket and they were held without communication away from the workers who in response to this were like, all right, we had a deal and you then decided to use that deal to arrest our leaders. So back to the factory. Fucking nailing it, guys. <laughs> and they immediately surrounded the plant yet again. <laughs> And so the, f- the company was thus forced to keep the plant closed during negotiations due to being physically unable to enter it while being surrounded. Uh, and with the leaders of the struggle arrested, but the threat of a general strike in the city by every single union growing, Ohio Governor George White began preparing plans to declare martial law in the city and open the plant by full military force. Which, after our previous experiences, we know would guarantee the goodwill of the people of Toledo and Ohio <laughs> forever. <laughs> right. So, as it, you know, it, it, things are getting really, really tense mm-hmm. at this point. And a parade of 20,000 union members and supporters marched through the city on June 1st to demonstrate their resolve and willingness to stop all work in the city if the company did not agree to the union's demands. And the next day, June 2nd, FLU 18384 and the Electric Autolite Company reached an agreement to end the strike. The union won recognition a ban on company unions, the rehiring of all workers fired during the strike for organizing activity, a minimum wage for all workers for the first time, and a raise of 5%. The company rehired all the workers by June 6th, and that Friday on June 9th, the Toledo Central Labor Council held a victory rally attended by over 20,000 people. And again, you know, since it was averted, I feel like it's easy to miss this. It might get lost in the shuffle. But the governor of Ohio was going to declare martial law to reopen one factory by military force. Mm -hmm. That's, I mean, that's just, it seems like fucking inconceivable. But it's true. And and that's not the only governor who would do that in mm-hmm. 1934. Uh, the governor of Rhode Island nearly declared martial law in the whole state, as we talked about in our national textile strike uh, series, which was also in 1934. The governor of Georgia, I believe, did declare martial law and imprisoned strikers during the national textile strike in a World War One POW camp. So, like... Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was. It, this is one of those things where it's 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 so interesting because they're always like, "I'm declaring martial law," but I'm like, "We should really rephrase that. I'm declaring open violent warfare against the working class because that's yeah. really what that means." Yeah, you're conducting a domestic <laughs> military campaign. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's yeah, it's like this is not a pogrom because it is not against an oppressed nationality. It's just against all workers. Right. So. Cla- so <laughs> yeah, so armed class else. violence is fine when we do it they're, that's what they're saying they're like and we're going to do yeah. it now yes and so like despite you know the power of the courts hundreds of armed mercenaries the police and even the full-blown military 
The workers of Toledo refused to bow to any level of force and fought back. And their victory would become one of the seminal moments of one of the biggest years in U.S. labor history and play a huge role in forcing the passage of the NLRA a year later, which would finally officially legalize the right to strike and ban the use of company unions. That same year, FLU 18384 officially became UAW Local 12. And Toledo remains one of the more heavily unionized cities in the United States, even after so many years of nationwide decline. The site of the former Autolite plant is now Union Memorial Park, dedicated to honor the legacy of the striking workers. And today, the Toledo Autolite strike remains a high point in showing what U.S. workers can accomplish when we stand together across job lines and fight for our common rights as a class. And the next time you meet a person from Ohio and they're the most stubborn person you've ever met in your life, just remember, that's for a damn good reason. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. But you know who else was very stubborn in 1934? The Teamsters. Hell yeah. <laughs> so I feel like this is a very timely uh, story to be telling, you know, right now, uh, end of July, early August 2023. Uh, we're going to move to our final general strike of 1934, Minneapolis. General strike, that's what the radio say. General strike, yeah, it's come to a I'm not wrong, eh? 